Father, what we need most right now is for your presence to fill this room and for your word to fill our hearts and for your spirit to strengthen our souls to receive whatever it is you want to tell us today, Father. I pray that you would speak clearly into our hearts and that you would ignite a fire in us, Father, to desire you and seek you unlike we've ever sought you before in our lives. I pray as we look, continue to look at Psalm 63, Father, that you would impress upon us in particular the incredible worth of your steadfast love. Help us have something of an understanding of that today as we look at the scriptures. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. So if you do have your Bibles, I'd ask that you grab them and turn to Psalm 63. Last week we began uh, exploring this psalm at the center of the book of Psalms. And um, last week when we began, we kind of set the table by asking the question, why did David write this psalm? What was the reason, what was his motivation in his life to cause him to write this psalm? And the heading provided for us in Scripture says that David wrote this while he was in the wilderness of Judah. And most scholars believe that this was when he was king of Israel, when he fled Jerusalem as king because his son Absalom was leading a rebellion to take the throne from him. That's the common understanding of this psalm. And we can tell from the psalm alone, just by the language that David uses here, irrespective of where David was geographically and what the reason was he was there, we can tell that his soul is experiencing a kind of wilderness, a kind of of passion is welling up in him in this psalm to find his way back home. And to see that one more time, I want to read Psalm 63.1, the first verse of this psalm. David says in this first verse, which is our focus last week, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So this verse is clear. It, it, it speaks from up within David's soul. He is longing for God. He is seeking God. He is thirsting for and fainting for God. That's the current location of his soul in a state of desperation for his God. And he's, he's painting, using this language, this poetic language, he is painting a picture that his soul is kind of like this parched, blistered thing that cannot survive unless God shows up. God doesn't show up. He won't live. He needs God. He needs to plunge his face in the deep river of cool, life-giving water that he calls God. And this, we said, was the first step on his journey back home, his journey to 
be with God, to be in the presence of God, to feel God's presence with him. And the first step was this verse, seek God, earnestly seek God. Now, what is the next step? Let's look at verses two through five. It says this, David says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Okay, so David, in the wasteland of his soul, is seeking the fountain of living water. He's seeking God. And then he says this word, so. It's really there in the Hebrew. So, and he pivots on this word and describes something that's happened to him in the past. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So he's describing this event, this experience in his past where he was in the sanctuary of God. He was in a place where he could witness God's power and God's glory. Now, this could be a supernatural event that happened, a supernatural experience or something that he powerfully saw that displayed the glory of God, displayed the power of God with his own eyes. But I tend to believe that this was something else. This was more than simply a, a physical evidence of the existence of God. David knew God was real. He knew God was real. He didn't need extra knowledge to know that God existed like some sort of supernatural phenomenon. What I think he's referring to here is the presence of God. He's seeking God. God feels away from him. And you know what that feels like. He wants to feel the presence of God. He wants to feel the joy of salvation. David is remembering a time when God's power and glory suddenly became very real for him. Very real. And it ceased to be this abstract theological concept that he believed in and became a reality that, that invaded his soul while he was worshiping in the sanctuary. God became suddenly intensely real, not just his existence, but who he was for David. And he says here, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. He, like that, he uses these words, I saw you. Something of you was, was apparent to me. And he's not talking about these eyes mainly. He's talking about the eyes of his heart, his soul. His soul was overwhelmed by the power and greatness and glory of God. It was unlike anything he had experienced. And so have you ever experienced anything like this? Has this ever been something that you could say, there was a point in my life when something radical happened to me and it was very clear God was very close to me, near me. I had something like this once. I'm going to describe it just by way of example. This is where I feel like David was headed in this language. So late one night I was finished praying with my, my, my two kids. Uh, they actually were in bed and I was praying sort of next to their beds as they were sleeping, and I walked downstairs. It was just normal prayer. It wasn't anything extravagant. It wasn't any kind of intense emotional prayer. Um, and I go to the front door to lock it. And as I make sure that the door is locked, I, I see through these little inset windows on the top of the door 
the sky. It's nighttime, and it's got stars in it. Not a lot, just a few stars. And as I look up at these stars, without warning, I am suddenly overwhelmed with what I am seeing. These are, think about it for a second, these are trillions of stars really out there. I'm seeing just a small handful of them. They are massive celestial bodies like our sun that are hanging in the the dark expanse of a seemingly infinite space. And I was just talking to the one who made those. And he was hearing me. Not only did he make them, but he made them and he has kept them in existence every millisecond that they've been around by the word of his power. And I was talking to him. That same person, I was talking to him. And in that moment, I was, I was overwhelmed by the reality of that. I went into the other room, fell on my face and wept. Not in sadness, just stunned by what I had, almost as though a veil had been slightly torn back and I felt something of what we talk about and what we read about in a way that I'd never felt before. I think David means something like this. I think he means something like this. When he says, I saw God in the sanctuary, that he beheld God's power and glory, he encountered the realness of God. God, as an abstract theological point, is one thing. We can all talk about him in that way. But God is absolute reality. Leaning into our weak frames is something completely different. It is a ferociously overwhelming experience. And this clearly had an impact on David, which is why when he's in the wilderness of his soul, he remembers this fact. My God's real, and he is powerful, and he is great, and he is glorious beyond measure. And that experience was enough to drop him to his knees and to create worship in his heart. That's what's going on here. He is worshiping God. But that's not all that David experienced. David didn't just experience God's power and God's glory. Something else happened here. Now look at what it says in the next verse. He says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I love this verse. I love this verse. I think it's at the center, not only of, of who we are as Christians in our church here specifically, I think this is at the center of human existence. The steadfast love of God is better than anything in our lives. Think about what he's saying here. Everything that life could offer us, every single good thing and every single thing traumatic, bad thing, everything that life could offer us on that spectrum cannot compete with the love of God if it's rightly known. God's love is better than life. This is an astonishing statement because if we think about all the different things that we have in our experience of life, I mean the sun, a blue sky, children, family, good food, good drink. We think about all of these 
glorious things, David is saying all of that stuff combined times a thousand cannot hold the candle to the kind of love that God has for us. So David isn't just encountering God's power and glory. He sees that. He is also encountering God's steadfast love, which means it is becoming, it's, it's turning inward now. It's not just this idea out here. It is going inward to David in a fiercely personal way. This is a big deal because he's saying that the kind of love we experience in God's presence isn't like the kind of love we experience here. That kind of love is great, but his kind of love is worth giving up everything for. It's better than life. And so this is what David is dealing with in this moment, the unequaled love of God. And I want to pause for a moment and just think about where David is. David has had no change in his situation. He's literally just words from verse 1, earnestly seeking God in a barren wasteland. Nothing has changed in his situation, yet in some ways, everything has changed. It, it's like him saying, even though I can't see home from where I am, even though I'm in the wilderness, I'm struggling to understand where God is in my life. I know what home is like. I know it. I've been there. And that is enough for me to say, I will praise you, God. I will praise you. His response to these things that he's tasted and experienced in his past is worship. He says here, I will praise you. And he ends this stanza in this text with this line, so I will bless you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. This is the appropriate response to the steadfast love of God, which is better than life. Blessing God and lifting up our hands to God and saying, I'm yours. As long as I live, I am yours. When I stop blessing you is the day that I stop breathing. And until then, I'm going to lift my hands in surrender to you. You are my God. And he says this still in the wilderness of his soul. Things have not changed. He is still desperately seeking God. He is trying to, with every ounce of strength he has, to make his way home. He remembers God. He remembers God's power. He remembers God's glory. He remembers God's matchless love. And then change is starting to break into his life, even though the circumstances have not changed. Now, keep in mind, this isn't because he's just blissfully ignoring his circumstances. He's not even downplaying them. He's still trying to find his way home here, but there is something inside of him that has changed. And even though these circumstances that are still, in David's case, his son's rebellion against him, um, and then emotionally and spiritually, this feeling of abandonment from God, even though he is in these difficult, challenging circumstances, and they remain unresolved, his vision of who God objectively is, what he knows about his God, has totally changed his heart and his life. And in that moment, this experience is more than enough to get him through as a guide out of the wilderness. 
And it's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen precariously and probably with great difficulty, but it will get him all the way home. Now, you know this is true, even if you never thought about it in these terms. You know this is true because stories like this are throughout the Bible, all over the place. And I'm going to give you a few examples here to draw out the nuances and subtleties so that we can apply this to our hearts. One example is Job. Job, if you recall, a blameless and righteous man by all accounts. Um, He is uh, blameless before God, yet somehow, through a providential sequence of events, a wave of destruction, unlike really anything that I could say any of us have ever experienced, passes through his life. He loses all of his children in one moment. And then for 40 chapters, we bear witness to his soul being torn apart by indictments and accusations. And finally, at the very end, he is about to get in God's face. He's done. He's had enough. And God shows up and reveals to him who God really is. And in that moment, Job beholds the power and glory of God, and we get his response in Job 42. Listen to this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job came face to face with God, even in the middle of this looming tragedy in his life. And what he saw in God changed him to his core. Profoundly, He says, now my eyes see you. I've known about you. I've known of you. I've known who you are. But now that I see you, I repent. I repent in dust, in ashes. And God, in response to this, showing his love for Job, lifts him up, heals him, restores everything that he had before taken from him. And Job, in that moment, recognizes that the greatest significance in his life isn't what he had, but it was God himself. It was beholding who God is. Job had discovered, like David, that there is nothing like him in the world. His steadfast love is better than life. And it was a massive change, even before he had received anything back. He's still in the middle of the wilderness when he's talking to God here. That's one example. Here's another one. Asaph in the Old Testament, he's a psalmist. Psalm 73 is a psalm that Asaph writes about abuses that he's experienced at the hands of wealthy people in Israel. 
and he begins to question God. It's a, it's a wild psalm because he, he starts off talking about these people who are wicked and abusive and, and they're rich people. And then he leans into the fact that maybe this is what I should be doing. Maybe, I sh- maybe I'm wasting my time worshiping this empty sky. I need money. I need wealth. And we're going to see that right here in verse 13. Let me read this and then we're going to look at the change in his life. Verse 13. Asaph says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, talk like these rich people who are wicked. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's about to turn against God. He's about to say, I'm done with you. I'm out. Isn't it wild that we have a song like this in our Bible? It's an amazing thing. He doesn't. He recognizes in that moment that wealth is actually not necessarily a blessing from God. In fact, it can often be a curse because it can distract you from what is most important, God himself, the most important thing in the universe. It can deceive us into thinking that there are better things in life than the love of God, and there isn't. We were made to enjoy God. We were made to love God. And Asaph realizes this fact, and everything in his heart changes. Listen to this sequence of verses. You've heard this because we've been here a few times. Verse 21 is where it starts. When my soul was embittered, he's talking to God now. When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Why is he continually with God? He says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So you can see with Asaph, this change in the heart that David is experiencing in Psalm 63 and that we saw in in Job (laughs) is all over this book. It's at the center of our Bible. It's throughout the Bible. We see this over and over and over again. And what we're getting a glimpse of here is the purpose of pain. Why pain exists. Why does suffering exist in the life of a believer? Why do you, why, why, why do you and I walk through suffering in a wilderness of the soul from time to time, crying out to God? Why do we do that? Well, David's psalm is telling us why in in Asaph's by proxy. For those who do not know or love God, suffering in the world is actually the just and righteous wrath of God who is displaying in the world against all the ungodly, displaying how 
objectively horrific sin is next to the holiness and beauty of God is the only way he could adequately explain it. It's the only way he could effectively show us, do you want to know what it looks like for you to dishonor me? It looks like a world broken. That's what it looks like. It looks like tsunamis. It looks like famine. It looks like lawlessness. That's what it looks like. And that's the main reason why we have suffering in the world. Yet that's not why we as believers suffer. You know this because Scripture is clear. We have a Savior who has absorbed all of the wrath of God directed towards us for what we've sinned and how we've committed uh, dishonoring against Him. And we don't suffer for that reason at all. Our pain is manifoldly different in this life. There is a, a different reason we experience wilderness in our lives and pain and suffering. And the reason is because in the pain, we get a glimpse of something. We see something that we could not have seen otherwise, and everything changes. In the wilderness, there is a way we can experience the power and the glory and the steadfast love of God that is better than life that is impossible to feel outside of it and draws our hearts out of the pain in this world and into praise, into worship. Listen to Asaph again. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. And they are failing. As he writes this word, he's still struggling with the abuses he's received. He's still fighting the pain. But he says, at the end of the day, God is the strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God. And the reason why is that he gets to tell of all God's works, which sounds an awful lot like, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The wilderness of the soul for, for Asaph and for David and for Job and really for all of us is God's providential way of weaning us, his children that he loves, off the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world, off contentment in what this world can provide us, off comfort in this world. When our soul is surrounded by dry and weary land, where there is no water, God doesn't want us to turn to a mirage of self-reliance. He doesn't want us to turn to a mirage of worldly comforts. God wants us to turn to him, to realize objectively that his steadfast love is better than anything in our lives. That's not just a cute bumper sticker statement. That is real and true. And the wilderness is God's way of of pulling us into his embrace. Of saying, these things are good, but I want you to know me. I want you to see me. I want you to love me. That's why the wilderness exists. And to illustrate this one more time, I want to look at one final example to try to press this a little bit deeper into our lives. And the example is the Apostle Paul. You know Paul, because we spend a lot of time talking uh, about him and, and reading what he's written. Paul said in Philippians 1, to live 
is Christ. And to die is gain because he gets to be with Jesus. If anyone in the New Testament embodied a reliance on the sufficiency of the love of God through Jesus Christ, it was Paul who said he counted everything as loss next to the surpassing worth of knowing what? Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything as loss. Paul agreed with David. The steadfast love of God is better than everything, infinitely better than everything in my life. So why did Paul feel this way? Did he just make a decision one day? Did he say, you know what, I think this is a really good idea. Um, I'm going to love Jesus more than everything else. Why did he, how did he, how did his soul make this shift? And to answer that question, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, we're going to start with verse 2. Why is it that Paul sees the glory of God in Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure in the universe? While being attacked, imprisoned, brutalized, beaten, whipped, and stoned. For that reason, for loving Jesus. How is that possible? How did that happen? 2 Corinthians 12 Verse 2, I believe, gives us a glimpse into part of that reason. Paul says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he, this man heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So Paul here is referring to himself. The Corinthians that he's writing this letter to have been infected by um, these false apostles who love to brag. They love to boast. They love to, to get glory for themselves, and they're undermining God's work in this church. And so Paul here is exposing their wickedness by telling a personal story. And he does it in third person explicitly not to seek any praise from anybody. <clears throat> and so his story about this man is really Paul. It's a story about himself. He experienced 14 years before this a radical encounter with God. He was caught up to the third heaven into paradise. And it says he heard things that he can't even talk about. He daren't even speak about them. They are too wonderful. And in a way, this scene kind of looks a little similar to what we read in Psalm 63 with David when he was in the sanctuary. He said, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Paul's experience is similar to this, though Paul's experience is very much beyond the scope of anything I personally, or I would say probably with confidence, all of us have experienced this side of eternity. God's power and God's glory were present with Paul. He tasted them, and he knew that they were real. That's the only thing that could make sense based on the language he uses here. So what happens after this vision? Look at verse 7. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me 
from becoming conceited. So Paul says that in order to keep him from becoming conceited and boasting like these false apostles did, and he had a right, if anything, to boast because he had seen such incredible things, something happened to keep him from doing that, something horrible. He says, I was given a thorn in the flesh. I was given a thorn. And he refers to it as the messenger of Satan. The purpose of this thorn was to harass Paul. That's what he says here. It was here to harass me. It was here to prevent me from becoming conceited. Now, we have to think about this hard. Satan wants Paul to be conceited. He's not interested in Paul being less proud. He would love that to be the case. So where does this thorn come from? This painful thorn that ultimately wasn't for his detriment. It was for his benefit. And Paul doesn't go into detail what the thorn is, probably because the thorn is meaningless outside of what he's about to explain about it. The thorn wasn't pleasant. It caused him great pain. It was probably a wilderness of pain, an unrelenting, agonizing thorn in his soul But Paul says, it was given to me to kill my pride. It was given to me to keep me humble because I had seen something beyond incredible. And so what this means is that it wasn't Satan ultimately that gave him the thorn. Ultimately, this thorn, even if it came through Satan's mediation, came from the very loving and very merciful hand of God. And we know this in part because what Paul's already told us, it was for his benefit, excruciating though it was, but we also know it because of what he says next. Listen to this in verse 8 and 9. Three times, this is Paul, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, the thorn, should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul is pleading with Jesus three times, he says, begging him, please remove this thorn. Please remove this thorn. And though Christ could remove it without any problem or any delay in that moment, the response Paul gets is no, not yet. Not yet. The thorn, Paul, this wilderness of pain that you are experiencing has to stay for now. It has to stay. And the reason for that is that, Paul, you need to to learn something. You need to see something. And here is what it is. Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It is sufficient in every kind of way you can imagine because my power is made perfect in your weakness, in your weakest state, it is made perfect. I know the thorn hurts. I know it hurts. But what would hurt you even more was for you to not know the absolute and total sufficiency of my grace. That would hurt you infinitely more. 
And what we see here in 2 Corinthians 12 is that thorns don't always get removed immediately. In fact, the pathway out of the wilderness of thorns is oftentimes never a straight shot. There are zigzags, and sometimes the dark nights of the soul seem to last forever. But the point of the thorn in the wilderness, the point of the thorns in the point of the wilderness is for us to see the complete sufficiency of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. That's the whole point. My grace, Paul says, Jesus says to Paul, is sufficient for you. God wants Paul to know just how much he loves him. It is the kind of love that is willing to press a thorn deep into our souls until we are totally and completely reliant on him. He loves us that much. That is our need, our greatest need. This passage is saying that when our heart feels like it's drowning in agony, as a believer, as someone who trusts in Christ Jesus, when it feels like we are drowning in agony, that's when God's love can finally become real to us in ways that we could never experience before. And so the question I have for you today is this. Do you know that God's steadfast love is better than life? And I don't mean just as a statement or a bumper sticker. I mean, do you know that to be true? Do you feel that way about his love? Because it is. It is better than life. And that's what Paul's learning in this scene with Jesus. He's learning that the sufficiency of grace found only in Christ Jesus is the only way to get through, pass through the unrelenting pain of the thorn. And that's why Paul can say, 14 years later, Jesus Christ is everything to me. He is everything to me. And he sails around the known world, never shutting up about Jesus until they remove his head through countless persecutions. Listen to how Paul closes this in verse 9. It'll give us an understanding of what posture change happens in his soul to create this kind of knowing about, Christ, about the love of, of God. He says, therefore, after Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says that his response to Jesus' refusal to remove the thorn is a boasting, a glad boasting, he says here, boast all the more gladly in his weakness. And he does this so that the power of Christ, the power of Jesus, rests upon him, even in the middle of incredible pain. Pain's not removed. Thorn is still in Paul when he says this. And so just like David, just like Job, just like Asaph, what Paul is about to do here in this language is worship Jesus. He boasts in God. That's what praise is. That's what, that's what David is doing in Psalm 63. When Paul says, for the sake of Christ, he is saying, my lips will praise you. It's for your glory alone. I am content with everything the world can throw at me. Insults, hardships, suffering, calamity, all of it. Why? Because when I'm weak, I'm strong. 
Paul's strength doesn't arrive when his circumstances get realigned. His strength comes not when the dark cloud lifts, but when he recognizes that he doesn't need his strength to begin with. What he needs is the power of Christ to rest upon him. He needs to recognize and boast in his own insufficiency so that the sufficiency that's found in Jesus flows out to him. That's what he means when he says, for the sake of Christ. He is expressing profound contentment for the sake of Jesus and his glory. And this is what it means to say to God, your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise your name and I will bless you, Jesus, as long as I live. Hear me on this one. God, especially people right now who are in the middle of extremely difficult situations, your Father in heaven loves you deeply. He loves you deeply, more than you can possibly ever understand. He loves you, especially in the wilderness. And to prove it, he gave us a glimpse of that steadfast love in Jesus, who on his head took a crown of thorns. And in fact, the greatest act of love that God's ever shown us was in the darkest hour that Jesus Christ ever experienced when Jesus plunged into the most barren wilderness of the soul conceivable. And the thing that he loved the most in the world, his father, all of a sudden disappeared. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cut off. When Jesus experienced that, it was experienced so that we could say, your steadfast love, God, is better than life. It cost him his life to make that possible. Romans 5.8 says it most clearly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, don't miss this. I think we read this and we're like, okay, God loves us. Christ died for us while we were sinners. It says God shows his love for us. God desired that we would see it and know what it was because in that act of love, in that death of Jesus Christ, the path out of the wilderness is made clear. And it's not a change immediately in the circumstance. That's not what it is. Though we should plead with with God, like Paul did for it to happen. The path back home is remembering the power and the glory and the steadfast love of God, not just as abstract words in a book, but as the most real thing in the world to us. So that we could say with Paul, even while the thorn presses deep into my soul, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I know that God loves me and his love is better than anything in this life. Better than anything. Better than the circumstances being immediately fixed. So as we take communion here in a few moments and as we spend time celebrating and fixing our eyes on the cross, whether you are experiencing right now in your life a closeness with God, whether you feel his presence and his joy, or whether you are 
in the middle of a wilderness and you're suffering and you don't feel him close by. It feels like he's a million miles away. It feels like he's gone. Either end of that spectrum, I would ask you that as you worship and, and partake in communion, that you plead with God, show me your steadfast love. Show me what I need to see in order for me to say, your love is better than life. In order for me to feel that reality, I'm willing to lose anything for you. Your love is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise you and I will bless you as long as I live. Ask him for that. Seek him out for that. Desire that. That's at the heart of Psalm 63. And it really is the anchor for the rest of our time in this, in this book. This fact that God's love is really that good. It really is that good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what I just even asked my friends and myself to do today is impossible for us to do. We may be able to say words with our mouth, but to actually earnestly seek you is something that must be granted by the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would lean into every heart in this room, mine especially, and that you would draw out of us a, an earnest plea that you are delighted to answer. That we would see in your power and in your glory and in your steadfast love, a kind of beauty that is ravishing, that isn't like anything in this world. And that that would form for us an anchor of the soul so that no matter what kind of storm heads into our lives, no matter what kind of hurricane collides with our circumstances, that we are locked into you because we know you and at the end of the day, if everything goes away like it did for Job, if everything goes away, your steadfast love is better than everything. And therefore, we will cling to you, we'll fix our eyes on you, and we will find our way back home through this wilderness by remembering what you've done. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.